Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. Welcome to As a Woman, Fertility Hormones and Beyond. I'm your host, Dr. Natalie Crawford, and I am a board-certified OBGYN and fertility physician and also co-founder of Fora Fertility in Austin, Texas. Each week on this podcast, I discuss health and fertility and how they relate to your true self. Become a part of the community of collaboration that amplifies others as a woman. I hope you enjoy the episode. Hello, friends, and welcome back to the As A Woman podcast. I'm so thankful to have you here. I am just honored that you spend your most valuable commodity, your time, here with me. Today, we're going to start in on a new series, if we say that, where we're going to do some case studies. Essentially, I'm going to walk you through a presentation, what is the normal evaluation, what we're thinking, and working you through to the end of the case. Now, some of these might be real patients who have given permission and shared their story, and some of these might be 1,000% made up, okay? You do not have to worry if you're a patient that I'm talking about you particularly. So I think that sometimes it's really good to hear other people's stories for a lot of different reasons. One reason is that we often feel like we're the only one, and that is such an isolating experience. And hearing Another story, even in a case study, helps you understand, one, the normal medical process, two, what it is that your doctors are thinking about, and that helps you know if you're advocating for yourself appropriately, but three, understanding that you're not alone, that sometimes this journey towards fertility or your best self can really be hard and it can be difficult, and if there's anything we can do we can at least cross that bridge together and know that you're not alone. At the end of every episode, these case studies included, we will be doing for fertility's sake. This is our weekly Q&A where I answer your fertility-related questions. These questions are placed on Instagram every Monday. You can go to my Instagram at Natalie Crawford MD, ask your question, and we will answer it. Some on Instagram, some here. And then some in the weekly newsletter. You can also sign up for the newsletter at nataliecrawfordmd.com slash newsletter. We do get a lot of questions and sometimes we can't answer them all. But another way is that you can call and leave a voicemail. Voicemail questions are my absolute favorite. You can call 657-229-3672. Again, that is 
929-3672. Leave your voicemail and we will do question and answer. The more questions we get, the more frequent we are going to do those because those are my favorite episodes. All right. So without any further introduction, let's get into our case. All right, so this case is Sarah. Sarah is a 28-year-old, and she has never tried to get pregnant in the past. She has been on birth control pills since the age of 18. She got on the pill when she went to college just because she wanted to have some control over her period, wanted to not have to worry about cramps or at least know when it was coming, and she wanted to be protected in case she found somebody she was not ready to have a baby. So she has stayed on the pill until age 28. She went to medical school and is nearing the end of her residency, and now she is ready to have a baby. So Sarah's been on the pill this entire time. As she's been taking the pill, she has been taking the placebo pills, and she has been on a pack that gives her a period every month. So she's been having monthly periods, felt fine on the pill, had no problems or no concerns whatsoever. Otherwise, she doesn't really have any other medical history. She has some mild anxiety, which she takes some medication for, but otherwise she is overall healthy. No significant past medical history, except her dad has high blood pressure. And then for her social history, she drinks alcohol just on the weekends. She doesn't smoke cigarettes or use any drugs. So side note is this is the basis of when your doctors are thinking about a history. You've got your person, who are they, how old they are, some basic circumstance about them. Do they have any medical problems? Do they take any medications? And is there any important family history or social history? Those are things that your doctor should be going over or you should at least be giving it to them, right? Stuff that's on typical new patient paperwork. So Sarah seems like any other 28-year-old who is ending her residency. Nothing seems to be too crazy about that. But now she has stopped the birth control pill and she's not had a period. And she thinks this could be for a few different reasons. I mean, she's a resident after all. But she gives it more time. And after three months when she hasn't had a period at all, and the whole reason she came off the pill was because she wanted to get pregnant, she decided to go to her OBGYN and get checked out. And so she goes into her OBGYN and this is what she tells her. Hey, I stopped the pill three months ago and I don't have a period. And her OBGYN tells her, that's fine. Just wait longer. It must just be coming off of the birth control pill. And then she leaves. Okay. So do you think that is the right answer? And do you think that's what's going on? Or what do you think is going on? The reality is you don't know at this point. By three months, somebody should have a period back. It might not be perfectly regular, but I am concerned in somebody who hasn't had a single period in three months. And so number one, if somebody is dismissive of this, I would say I would really want an evaluation and I'm going to tell you what we should check. If they're not willing to do that, you should go somewhere else, okay? Because We don't know. We do not have the information at this point to just believe that it's the pill because Sarah's not had a hormonally induced period in 10 years. We don't actually know what is going on with her body. So Sarah says, 
Okay, doc. I mean, you know, I'm in medicine too. I'm finishing up my residency. And even though it's in anesthesia, I, I just would really like to have an evaluation, you know, because I'm worried. And her doctor says, okay, so then what evaluation is appropriate at this time period? Like what would be a normal evaluation? That's a good question, right? So how do you know? You say, I want to be evaluated, but how do you know if your doctor is doing the right thing, if they're checking you out? Okay. So a typical evaluation is going to at minimum include blood work. Blood work could tell us a lot. Depending on your doctor or where you are, an ultrasound might also be a part of the piece of the puzzle because it can give us some good information. Okay. So what is our diagnosis right now? It is amenorrhea. We have absent periods. What are we going to do to evaluate this? All right, so the first place we're going to start with blood work is typically going to be FSH, LH, estradiol, TSH, which is thyroid stimulating hormone, and prolactin. That is your typical basic hormone. You could even narrow it down and probably just do FSH, estradiol, TSH, and prolactin. Essentially, we are checking pituitary hormones and then estrogen from the ovaries. And that is automatically going to help us understand what is going on from the beginning. That's the key. Well, to understand what these tests should come back, we have to understand again what should be happening normally and how the birth control pill disrupts that. So let's take a moment to just review what happens in a normal menstrual cycle. So you have a group of eggs that are available at the start of a given month, and each egg grows inside a follicle. If you've been here before, you know that I like to use the analogy of a vault. So imagine there's a vault inside your ovary. That is where all your eggs are kept. At the start of each month, a group of eggs comes out of this vault. Now, eggs are exiting the vault actually from like before you are born. And that is just happening over and over again. All those years before you started a period, before you started puberty, a group of eggs would come out of the vault. They wouldn't grow. They would just die. And the next month, another group would come out. When you started puberty, that was the brain starting to send out FSH. FSH is follicle stimulating hormone, a well-named hormone that would stimulate a follicle to grow. As that follicle started to grow, what would happen is it would make estrogen. That estrogen will grow the lining of the uterus. And then when that estrogen is high enough, it will trigger the brain to send out an LH surge. And this LH surge will cause the follicle to rupture. The follicle will rupture. The egg will ovulate, hopefully be picked up by the fallopian tube. And then that follicle reforms and makes the corpus luteum, which makes progesterone, under direction of LH from the pituitary gland. If there's no pregnancy, that corpus luteum can only live for two weeks. It dies, you get a period, and the process starts over. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Ritual. Did you know that women were excluded from clinical research policy by federal law until 1993? But women belong in scientific research. They're essential and Ritual knows this. I choose Ritual Multivitamin every day because it is easy to take and I know that I am getting high quality and traceable ingredients in a clean and bioavailable forms. In fact, Ritual conducted a university-led human clinical trial for their Essential for Women 18 Plus multivitamin 
to assess its efficacy, and the results showed increase in vitamin D levels by 43% and omega-3 DHA levels by 41% in just 12 weeks. No my shady business. Rituals Essential for Women 18 Plus is a multivitamin that you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month at ritual.com slash A-A-W. Start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash A-A-W for 25% off. Thank you, Ritual. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Quince. The weather's getting warmer, so it's time to say goodbye to jackets and sweaters and hello to shorts and tees. I wanted to update my wardrobe for the long haul without spending a fortune. And luckily, I found Quince. Now I've got a lineup of timeless pieces that keep me looking effortlessly chic year after year. The best part is that Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands, but Quince partners directly with top factories, cutting out the cost of the middleman, passing the saving to us, and only working with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices. I personally cannot wait to wear my cute tan linen set this summer. So it's your turn to get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com slash A-A-W for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash A-A-W to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash A-A-W. Thank you, Quince. When you take the birth control pill, the combined oral contraceptive pill is made up of ethanol estradiol at varying strengths and then a type of progestin, so a type of synthetic progesterone. These together are doing two things. One is that the ethanol estradiol is telling the brain to not send out FSH. It's filling up the estrogen receptors so the brain thinks an egg is already growing and FSH is not secreted. Well, that's good if you don't want to be pregnant because now there's no FSH, so you're not going to ovulate, so you don't get pregnant. The ethanol estradiol is also making your body so you're not estrogen deficient. It's growing the lining a little bit. It is helping your bones, your vagina, all the things. Now, it is not the same type of estradiol that your ovaries make, and it actually does not show up on an estradiol assay. So checking FSH, LH, and estradiol when you're on the birth control pill is not a thing. Or if somebody says they're going to check those, you should raise your hand and say, oh no, I'm on the birth control pill. Because I can already tell you what what they are. Your FSH and LH are low because you're on the birth control pill and your estradiol is low because ethanol estradiol on the birth control pill is not picked up in the estradiol assay. So there's no need to check them. They're all low. The end. Now, the progesterone in the birth control pill is much more progesterone than you would normally see. The reason why is this counters the estrogen. You can't have unopposed estrogen if you have a uterus because you'll never get a signal to have a period that endometrium will keep growing and you have risk for endometrial cancer. We don't want that. Constant progesterone actually thins out the lining. Most people enjoy when they're on the birth control pill because now you have a lighter period. There's less to bleed and less cramps. And prolonged pill usage, especially continuous pills. So this is much more a thing if you took pills and you skipped your placebo pills, which is great. Like then you don't ever have a period. Fantastic. That is 
pill-induced amenorrhea, perfectly fine and normal. It's from daily progesterone use. And when you stop that, it might take a while to get your period back. It might very well be the case that at three months afterward, you don't have your period back because that progesterone chronic exposure has just prevented the endometrium from being able to get to a thick enough level to bleed. But you don't know that without one, checking labs and making sure there's not something else going on. And number two, that is not the case in somebody who had a monthly bleed. So if you took the pill and you were having a monthly bleed and now you stopped it and you haven't had a period in three months, we can't say that is pill-induced amenorrhea. That is not a progesterone effect on the lining of the uterus. And as a side note, just to reinforce that process inside the ovary as far as losing eggs is continuing at the same rate, not speeding up, not slowing down. Birth control pill does not change it. So you're not impacting your future fertility by taking the birth control pill. Okay. So Sarah has stopped the pill, had a period every month. Now she hasn't had one for three months. She convinced her doctor to get some blood work done and her blood work, they checked FSH, LH, estradiol, TSH, and prolactin. But her doctor also had an ultrasound, and Scylla said, let's check an ultrasound too since you're here because that blood work will take a couple days to come back, but I'll get the ultrasound results right away. All right, like right, I'm a fan of that. I do that for the exact same reason. I can see it with my eyeballs right here in front of me. So her doctor goes and does an ultrasound. And her lining is thin on the ultrasound, so that's one data point. And then her ovaries do not have any dominant follicles, no cyst, nothing that is growing. So this is telling us that she is at least at this moment, like she's not ovulating, okay? Which we kind of thought was the case because of the amenorrhea. But now we do know, hey, okay, the lining is thin, she is not ovulating. So let's think through with this blood work. We did the ultrasound. What are all of our causes about what causes amenorrhea? So we talked about post-pill-induced amenorrhea. It's not in Sarah's case, obviously, and in not this case, but a progesterone IUD can cause the same thing. You can then have obstruction. So not in Sarah's story, but if you had a leap procedure or something done on your cervix or you gave birth or you had some something happened, you might have scar tissue at the opening of your cervix and that might cause you to not be able to bleed even though you are in fact ovulating. And you wouldn't see this in Sarah's case because she had periods younger, but you can also have weird birth defects. You can have something called a transverse vaginal septum, which is where there's this complete disconnect between the lower two thirds and the upper one third of the vagina and the period blood can't get out, but that presents on absence of menarche. So primary amenorrhea, never presenting with a primary period, even though you have secondary sex characteristics like breast development and sexual hair. And then there is an imperfect hymen, which presents very similarly but it's much lower in the vaginal tract where the hymen is. And you often can actually see that purplish, bluish bulge easily on examination. Similar that presents with primary amenorrhea, but just since we're chatting about it. So obstruction is not typically going to be a cause in any circumstance like this, unless there was some type of instrumentation of the uterus or cervix that we are not aware of. 
All right. Then we have our hormonal disorders. So we're going to have thyroid disease. And so thyroid disease can cause amenorrhea, both ends of the spectrum, hypothyroid or hyperthyroid. Hypo is much more common. Prolactin, the higher your prolactin gets, the less periods you're going to have. And then you have PCOS, hypothalamic amenorrhea, and ovarian failure. So these, really these four blood tests are going to help narrow your category down between what is going on hormonally. So let's just march through them. So thyroid disease, TSH is the typical screening test. It is not the only test if you have known thyroid disease. There's a lot more, but in this case, a TSH alone is sufficient. Thyroid stimulating hormone is a hormone made from the pituitary gland to stimulate the thyroid. You're noticing these hormones are actually very well named, so it's not as confusing as it seems. When the brain, which is one of the main sources of thyroid hormones, like effects, like the brain needs thyroid hormone for normal metabolic functioning, when the brain senses it does not have enough thyroid hormone, it is going to send out more thyroid stimulating hormone to get the thyroid gland to make more thyroid hormone. So when you have hypothyroidism, you do not have enough thyroid hormone, your TSH is high because your brain is really trying to get it to make some thyroid hormone. On the other end, if you have hyperthyroidism and your brain is like, I am getting too much thyroid hormone, your TSH is going to be low. And that is because your brain does not want the thyroid gland to make any more thyroid hormone, but it's obviously doing its own thing. In general, hypothyroidism tends to be associated with fatigue, weight gain, general sluggishness, delayed reflexes, overall dry skin, losing hair, hyperthyroidism, other end of the spectrum, feeling very hot, maybe losing weight, feeling sweaty, being hyperreflexive. So they're kind of opposite when it comes to your symptoms. Hyperthyroidism is often associated too with palpitations, feeling a racing heart, insomnia, not being able to sleep. In both of these, appropriate medical treatment should normalize the thyroid gland, and if that's the only thing going on, should restore normal periods. All right, next is prolactin. Prolactin is made from the pituitary gland. It actually has a very interesting pathway, but prolactin is here to lactate, it's the prolactational hormone. So when you are breastfeeding, your prolactin is really high. It's what's allowing your body to make milk. Prolactin has some other functions as well, but the cells of the pituitary gland can sometimes make too much prolactin. This can actually be induced by medications, typically not anxiety medication, but definitely some like antipsychotics, some other like medications for migraine or seizures are some of the most common ones, but also from something called a micro or a macro, but a pituitary adenoma. This is a tumor, not cancerous, but a tumor, which is a collection of abnormal cells in the pituitary gland. And these are all prolactin making cells. So your prolactin elevates. I am always fascinated by prolactin because it follows this very normal distribution. So you have normal prolactin, life is good. Your prolactin gets a little bit elevated and you have a short luteal phase. You are ovulating 
fine, but your luteal phase is shortened. Your periods are combing closer together. Prolactin goes higher, and now you have irregular periods or longer cycles. And then even higher, amenorrhea. And then as you treat somebody and their prolactin is dropping, they regress through the exact same period pattern. Really shows us nicely the spectrum of ovulation disorders or dysfunction from luteal phase, long cycles, irregular cycles, amenorrhea. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Apostrophe. With the temperatures starting to warm up, I'm so excited the summer is around the corner and getting ready and looking forward to the summer months. But I know that when I'm outside enjoying nature, I need to pick up supplies to prepare myself for summer adventures. And if you want to get your skin glowing in time for summer, it's time for you to get started with Apostrophe, who is sponsoring this episode. Apostrophe's goal is to help you feel confident in your own skin. So whether you're dealing with breakouts, signs of aging, or acne scarring, Apostrophe will help you love the skin you're in. I personally love that you get access to an expert dermatology team, a tailored treatment plan. It's simple to sign up for your first visit, and there is no in-person appointment or trip to the pharmacy needed. We have a special deal for our audience. Get your first visit for only $5 at apostrophe.com slash A-A-W when you use our code A-A-W. That's a savings of $15. This code is only available to our listeners. To get started, just go to apostrophe.com slash A-A-W and click get started. Then use the code A-A-W at sign up and you'll get your first visit for only $5. Thank you, Apostrophe, for sponsoring this episode. So in Sarah's case, her TSH and her prolactin are both normal. So dang, I always say dang when those come back normal because like those are easy ones, right? For the most part, medication can fix them. Sometimes hyperthyroidism is a little bit different. Sometimes high prolactin, you need to get a brain MRI, see if it's an adenoma. But for the most part, those are really easy fixes. All right, so then we have our reproductive hormones. Now, the very interesting thing about FSH, LH, and estradiol is that they are different depending on where you are in your cycle. While in Sarah's case, we did an ultrasound, so we kind of know what is happening on that end. And so we can know we can check these hormones. Example of what I mean is if she had a nice dominant follicle and she had a really thick lining, she might be just ovulating right now and going to get a period in a couple weeks. But because the ultrasound really wasn't showing us anything, it was essentially at baseline. Baseline is equal to when you're having a period, meaning nothing else is happening and the ovaries are typically at a more quiet state. In this state, a normal FSH Normal LH is typically between about 5 to 10 milli-IUs, so that's pretty normal. And your estrogen should be on the lowish side, typically in the 20s for the average person. Now, what we're really checking for at this stage with these hormones is that if your FSH is high and your estrogen is low, that's premature ovarian failure. Because in this case, if your brain is sending out all the FSH it can, and there's nothing coming from the ovary, it's because the ovaries can't work. That's the exact opposite of how the birth control pill works, right? The birth control pill causes your FSH to be low, so then no eggs are stimulated to grow. On the flip end, if your FSH is low, kind of like how the birth control pill is, but you're not taking the pill and your estrogen is low. That's what we call hypo-hypo. 
or functional hypothalamic amenorrhea. And then if they're normal, then that's much more suggestive of chronic anovulation or PCOS. In PCOS, you sometimes will see an elevated LH to FSH ratio. You might not see that this close to coming off the pill because typically you're seeing that when the body's really in high testosterone production mode, but you would expect essentially more normal results. And then there's some other tests that we could check that might help us go further once we know this. Okay, so what we're really looking for with this blood work is are our pituitary hormones normal or are our gonadotropins high or are they low? So in this case, Sarah's FSH came back at 53 and her estrogen was 12. So this is showing us that she is in POI or premature ovarian insufficiency. Any FSH level over 40 is essentially menopausal. And especially with an estrogen low, it's not like her ovaries are trying to make anything. Now, because she was on the pill, we actually don't know how long she's been in this ovarian failure or insufficiency state. Okay, so now Sarah has been diagnosed with premature ovarian failure or premature ovarian insufficiency, but we really don't know. If we had known she's had natural loss for her periods for a couple years and then she's just coming in, we might have a better idea that it's too late to do something. But the reality is we don't know when this happened because she has been on estrogen replacement for so long. So a few points, and I do have a whole episode about this, but just to think through one estrogen replacement is going to be important. So whether it's going back on the pill or starting estrogen while you're trying to make a decision. Number two at Fora, like we will often try to cycle these people, not every clinic will. So I don't want to tell you that everybody will, but in my brain, and I've had patients have success this way, I would say, Hey, you might not respond to stimulation at all. I I do not know. But there is a chance that you could, right? That in FSH, potentially a higher load of FSH after getting the ovaries in the right estrogen primed position might result in some follicles to grow. And you're young. So if we had eggs, your egg quality should be good. And so I would probably try what we call last ditch IVF stimulation. Not everybody would try it, but if you really feel like you need to try that before you give up the likelihood of having a genetic child, strongly recommend you find somebody who will. Why do clinics not want to do this? Because you're unlikely to have success and it hurts their IVF rates, right? If you ask how to find an IVF clinic and somebody tells you to go look at somebody's SART rates, clinics who will cycle poor prognosis patients are going to have lower rates because those count as negative cycles. Just saying, I think it's better to do what's right for the patient over looking out for your stats. But clinics in town feel really different about that. All right, so you might fast track it to try IVF. And then depending, if, you, if you've if got some embryos, you might try to bang out a few cycles because like maybe you could save a few and have a multi-child family. And I've had patients have success this way. So that is a possibility. I have also had patients who do not respond at all. I am trying all my fancy protocols, anything I can do, and their ovaries just say no. Okay, then we know 
that is not going to work. So the most likely path to have a child in that case is going to be donor egg or donor embryo. Both are valid, amazing, wonderful ways to have a family. Okay. I know it's different. The other option is to start estrogen replacement and you still will have to take some cyclic progesterone. But what I typically do in these patients is use estrogen for a couple months, take a pregnancy test, have unprotected intercourse. If the test is negative, then you'll start some progesterone, have a period and just keep on your estrogen. The reason why is estrogen decreases FSH from the brain. And FSH is important for an egg to grow, but if it's constantly at high levels, nothing can grow. So if you lower that FSH, you have an increased tendency of potentially having what we consider an escape ovulation. And if you are having intercourse, potentially you can get pregnant. And I've also had patients get pregnant this way. If you're okay, if you don't get pregnant right now, and I don't know when you went into ovarian failure, then in reality, you could do donor egg next month, next year, five years, 10 years. You have plenty of time for that. So if you wanted to say, hey, I need to be on some estrogen and maybe I will have an escape ovulation, we have about a 5% chance that you could result in a pregnancy. And then 5%, although not high, is much more than zero. And that's giving you a chance. I also think it's very important in a patient this young that we do an evaluation to try to see why you're in ovarian failure. Is it genetic? Is something with your karyotype? Do you carry fragile X? Is it autoimmune? What is it that potentially is causing this early ovarian insufficiency? And then the thing that Sarah should not do is not be on hormone replacement. The female body is meant to have estrogen. Going into early menopause and then not replacing with estrogen puts her at an increased risk of a stroke, heart attack, osteoporosis, dementia, and Alzheimer's. So that is just not worth it. Estrogen replacement is really important piece of this puzzle. In Sarah's case, she decided to do some last ditch IVF. And even though her first cycle was canceled in her second cycle, she made two embryos and they were both normal. She ended up doing a total of four cycles, had a batch of embryos, and ended up getting pregnant on her first embryo transfer. And then a couple years later, was able to have a second child. So her entire story was different because she got an early evaluation. She found out what was happening. She immediately sought treatment and she planned Once she had some success, they decided to spend money and invest on trying to store some embryos so they could have a second child, something that never would have been the case otherwise. So Sarah's case ended happy. She was able to warn her sisters that this happened to her and they were able to freeze their eggs when they were just getting out of college. And so they each have a big bank of eggs now so that if they fall into the same position, they won't have to potentially be in a place where they're not able to have a child. So ultimately, learning how to advocate for yourself is key, and that's a huge piece of this story. All right, y'all, if you like the case study series, let me know. I have a whole list of things that we can go through. I hope you found this educational, both to think through what we're thinking about and then how to advocate for yourself as well. I am now going to answer some of your fertility questions. Again, you ask these on Mondays on Instagram at Natalie Crawford, MD.
How exactly does PGTM work? So PGT is pre-implantation genetic testing. It is when we are testing the cells of an embryo. And really at this stage, the embryo is divided into the trophectoderm or the outer cell mass, which becomes the placenta or the inner cell mass, which is the embryo. When we are testing the embryo, you are taking five to eight cells from that placental segment and then sending them off for testing and freezing the embryo. The embryo has to be expanded and divided into these two segments, and if it's not good enough quality or not organized enough, it's not able to be tested. There's really three different types of PGT, PGTA, PGTM, PGTSR. PGTA is pre-implantation testing for aneuploidy or abnormal chromosome number. Normal chromosomes are 46XX or 46XY. But we know that not all embryos are genetically normal, and as you get older, you have an increased prevalence of having abnormal embryos. This is from random abnormal splitting of meiosis 2, and this is just because the chromosomes have been sitting there longer as you get older. So PGTA is simply counting those chromosomes. So do you have the right number? Are you missing part of a chromosome or a whole chromosome or have an extra one? And so PGTA is what we consider genetic screening, looking for chromosome abnormalities. This is done even if you do one of the other types of PGT. Now, PGTM, the M stands for monogenetic disease, so a single gene disorder. This is not every disease out there. This is a disease that is clearly identified to be caused by a dysfunctional or a deletion in one single gene, and you can identify it. Because it is very hard to test for this, you just can't test embryos for every single gene disorder, but you actually can test adults for that quite easily. So I get a test tube full of your blood, I send that tube off, and I can check you for 500 single gene disorders and see if you're a silent carrier for them because I have so many cells to work with. But in the embryo, I only have five to eight cells, so I need to know what I'm working with. So in this case, I have to know the gene to be tested, and typically you have to have a sample in order to make a probe. So if it is an autosomal dominant disease, something like BRCA, BRCA, the breast cancer disease, or Huntington's, then you just need the person who's affected or potentially another lineage parent or grandparent. Or if it is a autosomal recessive disease, then you ideally have the two parents who carry the disease and you make probes off of them. Essentially think of a probe like a fluorescent flag. We'll use cystic fibrosis because there's a couple different, exact different mutations that can cause CF. You would make a little flag for what each parent carries, and then you would apply those to the embryos and the embryos will light up if they carry each of the flags. And so then you know the embryos that get both of them actually would be diseased and then you would avoid transferring those embryos. Most PGTM for autodom diseases, we would quote a typical 50% prevalence rate. And then for autosomal recessive, you would expect a 25% disease, 50% carrier, 25% unaffected split. All right, the next question is, can you still have sex with IVF? Well, 
like not really. Officially, you could probably have sex like the first day or so because you don't really have follicles growing yet and you're remote from the egg retrieval. Same thing with regular exercise. But really, after day four of STEM, you should avoid sex. You should avoid vigorous exercise. Couple reasons. One is you don't want to have a risk of an infection when you get to the egg retrieval, but really you don't want to have ovarian torsion. And we're really quite concerned about that because we don't want the ovaries as they get bigger with follicles to twist in the body and that would become a surgical emergency. Number three is in theory, you might not capture every egg at egg retrieval. There was a case of an egg donor who had intercourse right before her egg retrieval and actually got pregnant with high order multiples. I don't know if it was quads or quintuplets. I don't remember, but it was because she had intercourse, had an egg retrieval, but some of those small eggs weren't retrieved. She then ovulated them and ended up getting pregnant. Can issues with sperm motility and volume be fixed? If so, can the changes be significant? It really depends. So volume probably has a higher chance of being changed because it does really depend on how hydrated or dehydrated somebody is. If they're taking certain types of like allergy medication might actually make the volume less if they had ejaculated more recently, or it's been a long time. So that's why your clinic tends to give certain parameters around the volume. If we have somebody who has a low volume, then I'm always asking, did you get it all in the cup? Did we have some spillage? Have we had a recent ejaculate? Are we taking, you know, antihistamines, anything that could make us dehydrated? And then considering a repeat analysis with a longer abstinence window. Motility issues can sometimes be improved. If we know that there is something that we are doing that could be contributing to them, like smoking cigarettes or using marijuana, then stopping those behaviors and then repeating a semen analysis three to six months later, we would anticipate if that was the sole cause, seeing an improvement. Depending on your timeline and female factors, I never want to see somebody wait six months for sperm change without having the female partner evaluated because what if you're running out of eggs or your tubes are blocked and all that waiting was for nothing? But especially marijuana, I have seen really significant changes when somebody has stopped it and then waited and repeated an analysis months later. What was your research topic during fellowship? I like this one. So in REI fellowship, that is a three-year fellowship after four years of OBGYN. So you do, you know, four years of medical school, four years of OBGYN residency, and then you do three years of fellowship. One half is research and one half is clinical. And so in my research time, I did all of my research on natural fertility or fecundability and specifically the luteal phase. So I did a few other projects looking at environmental toxins, which I will tell you made us clean up our kitchen and our products significantly once I dove into that research. But I did most of it on reporting the luteal phase and what influence it has on conception and just trying to understand natural fertility better. I had four failed embryo transfers. Would you recommend endometriosis tests? Well, to be fair, I'm not sure that I would recommend endometriosis tests, but I might recommend an endometriosis protocol. So my question is, what are you going to do with that information? If you're going to go get a BCL-6, like endometrial biopsy, Are you going to then do like a long loop on suppression or have surgery? If you're just going to do a long loop on suppression for a couple months, then is that not the same protocol you're going to do for current implantation failure? Because 
I'm typically doing it after four transfers anyway that have failed. So I'm somebody who loves data, but I always like to think about, is this information going to help me or change what I'm doing? Or is it just going to spend more time and more money? Because if it's not going to make a difference in what I'm doing, is there a point to doing it? And to sometimes the answer is yes, but sometimes the answer is no. So I think that is time to have like an honest and open discussion with your fertility doctor to see what they say about that. Okay, you guys, let me know what you thought about the case study series. This is our first one. We'll put a question box up on Instagram. As always, for these questions, you can ask them Mondays on Instagram at Natalie Crawford MD, or you can also read the newsletter, NatalieCrawfordMD.com slash newsletter, and you can call and leave a voicemail. The voicemail number is 657-229-3672. Again, that is 657-229-3672. Thanks, friends. Thank you all for listening to As a Woman. It would mean so much if you could rate, review, and follow the podcast to be notified of new episodes every Sunday. I hope you learned something new, and I hope you share it with someone in your life. Be sure to follow along on Instagram at Natalie Crawford MD and check out the YouTube channel Natalie Crawford MD. If you're interested in becoming a patient, you can also follow Fora Fertility. I'm so thrilled to have you here, part of the community that amplifies others as a woman.